This is the 20 Minutes to Clarity podcast with Jason Noble. Advisory services offered through Prime Capital Investment Advisors, LLC, PCIA, a federally registered investment advisor, Overland Park, Kansas. The following or preceding commentaries and responses are the opinions of Jason Noble and his guests and are not necessarily the opinions of PCIA and are for informational and educational purposes only and are not and should not be considered investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. No guarantees expressed or implied. Welcome to the 20 Minutes to Clarity podcast with Jason Noble, featuring down-to-earth interviews with people like the professional athletes we work with, the closet millionaires, the enterprising entrepreneurs, and others we have the pleasure of calling clients and business partners. Each podcast focuses on candid one-on-one conversations with incredible people who share their journey to success, including the mistakes they've made along the way, the hard work it took to grow their net worth, and relatable elements of their life stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Now... Here's Jason. Scott Duba is Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director of Wealth Management at Prime Capital Investment Advisors, a personal wealth and corporate retirement plan advisory firm with over $20 billion in assets across 10,000 wealth households and 700 retirement plans with half a million retirement plan participants. Previously, Scott served as Director of Portfolio Manager at Mariner Wealth Advisors, where he managed private investment portfolios, performed due diligence and oversight over various venture capital investments, and led the rollout of the firm's cryptocurrency strategies. Scott was also the co-founder of Ontario Peak Capital Management, a distressed debt hedge fund, and he held senior analyst roles at Artisans Partners, Newberger Berman, Lehman Brothers Asset Management, where he specializes in corporate bonds and bank loan investing. Scott is also a CFA charter holder, has an MBA of the University of Chicago, and a BA from the University of Notre Dame. Scott's also a founder and managing director of 425 Holdings, a strategic consulting and financial technology venture uh, firm. Scott really hails from Chicago, where he and his Texan wife, Erin, have five children, ages from three to 15. Goodness gracious, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. It, it, it's a pleasure to have you on, and it's a pleasure, obviously, working with you here at Prime Capital. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. What would you say makes you who you are as a person and as a professional? Uh, family and upbringing. I think uh, I grew well, I grew up, one correction to your bio, I grew up in Michigan, actually, before Chicago, but I was the seventh of eight, eight kids. Uh, my parents ran a restaurant. And so I grew up in an environment that very much valued uh, high integrity, hard work, honesty, uh, and grit. And so I think that that is probably what makes me who I am the most. And if you roll that forward, now, of course, I'm a function of my family, my five kids and my beautiful wife. And so if anything makes you who you are, it's your family. I love what you just said there. And I, I just think you have such a diverse experience within our industry from bonds to venture capital, cryptos. What was the driving passion that led you to doing what you're doing now as the chief investment officer? Um, well, I'd say my my professional career has been one of kind of just chasing curiosity about different asset classes and just wanting to learn more and more about businesses and analysis and investing. And when I look back, um, you know, I've probably analyzed 10,000 different businesses over the course of my career across a variety of sectors in industries, in different parts of the cap structure. And so what I really love about this role at Prime Capital, about we, what we do, is it enables me to employ that 
history and skill set and experience to not only serve our clients on both the wealth and retirement side, but also help train up the next generation of great investment leaders within our company. Um, you know, sometimes I say I, I'm, a, I'm a jackknife or a Swiss Army knife, uh, maybe a dull one, but still a Swiss Army knife at that. So I like to bring those skills to bear anywhere I can to help our clients. No, we definitely appreciate it. And, you know, let's take a moment to discuss your background in the corporate bonds and bank loaning investing side. With the bond market being twice the size of the equity market, how did that experience lend to your knowledge of being able to do market evaluations and business evaluations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, for the past probably 20 years, uh, credit analysis has been um, a less sexy role because, frankly, we haven't had a lot of defaults and there's been a lot of money floating around that has been able to solve problems. But when you come up working for a high-yield shop or doing distressed bond investing, um, you need to know not only the fundamentals of the business and the industry and the sector, but you need to know intricately how the capital structure works, how the firm earns a return on its capital, and how they're deploying that to the benefit of both the creditors and the equity holders. And so in my experience, having that ability to understand not only the uh, business fundamentals, but also the capital structure and capital allocation is a real advantage when we look at different businesses and try to pick those that we think are ultimately going to be the winners in a given industry. I'm going to drill down a little bit on what you said. Uh, so what are some of the things you are looking at on the capital structures to sure. determine a, a business that is uh, poorly ran versus a business that's worthy of investing into and being a part of as an investor? Uh, what does that look like? If you could just give me and the audience Sure. Some, some tidbits there. Well, I would say to start with, uh, capital structure does not determine the quality of a business. Um, it's kind of an afterthought, right? I mean, you could be a fantastic business with a terrible capital structure or a pristine capital structure and a terrible business. It's really the fundamental competitive positioning of the firm itself, the sector it's in, what the management team is doing that really ends up mattering the most over the long term. But when we look at capital structures, when I look at capital structures, um, what I'm trying to tease out is, is the company optimally allocating its free cash flow? Um, for instance, if you saw a company that had a lot of debt that was very expensive um, and they were sending a bunch of cash flow to service debt, instead of investing in very good internal organic growth opportunities, that would be a bit of a missed opportunity. Um and you might find businesses that, frankly, just don't earn high returns on capital and therefore shouldn't be investing in the business. They should be distributing it to shareholders. So it's hard to encapsulate in just one or two nuggets. But mm -hmm. when you just make sure you understand the cost of capital, both debt and equity, relative to the return opportunities inside of a business, it really shines a light on which managers are excelling and which ones um, could do better. That, that leads me into one of our update calls that we had the privilege of getting on a monthly basis. You were mentioning the companies who are able to manage the bottom of the line through this economic environment we're in right now. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to get out of it a little bit better as we come out because so, yeah. so many years they were managing just to the top of the mm -hmm. balance sheets. Now they have to manage to the bottom. Yeah. So have you started to see that with more and more businesses managing to the bottom of the line and doing it better than what we've seen? Is that a trend that you've seen already in this environment we're in right now? 
Well, um, we're seeing the early signs of it, um, especially in the tech sector. We're seeing a lot of announcements of layoffs and hiring freezes that, you know, we really haven't seen in a long time, especially in the tech sector. So you're starting to see um, a renewal in margin management and profitability management. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, Capital was very cheap for a long time. And so management teams were not really... They, they were more being valued on growth, top line growth, as opposed to free cash flow and actual profitability. Um, when when rates are low and capital is free flowing, it's the growing companies that tend to get valued the most. You know, case in point is the venture capital sector um, over the past couple of years. Now that we're in an environment where capital is more expensive, um, you know, people are valued more on being able to actually generate returns on that capital, not just growing revenue, but turning that into profitability and free cash flow to the shareholders. And so you're starting to see that discipline come back uh, with companies announcing layoffs. But, you know, the jury's still out in terms of how successful that will be. Um, Certainly it would appear that economic growth is slowing and top line growth will slow down as well. And we'll find out probably in the next 12 years which ones are able to manage their business well to maintain margins and which are not. Um, But to your original point about, I think what I had said about those that are strong get stronger in periods of stress I think we'll absolutely absolutely see that over the next couple of years where those firms that have great competitive positions, have a pristine balance sheet and a great management team, um, they'll be able to take advantage of the current volatility to expand and grow their market shares. You brought up VC, and, and I do want to transition into private investments, whether that be private equity, venture capital, private debt, or even structured notes. That's a wide swath there, but... How would you generally, high level overall, speak about how those types of investments play into constructing of an overall portfolio? Sure. Um, I look at it this way. Um, When you invest in private markets, it avails you to two different opportunities. Number one is investing in different companies that are available in the public market. Some of those are not as good. Some of them are even better than what you can find in the public market. So it's a diversifying pool of corporate issuers, different than what you can get in your standard S&P 500 NASDAQ exposure. So number one, it's diversity. Number two is you get paid for bearing the illiquidity of investing in private companies. So if you uh, invest in a public company stock, you can trade out of that pretty much whenever you want. And so you don't need to really pay for um, tying up your money. But if you invest in a private equity fund or invest in a firm where there really is no guaranteed liquidity or at least no near-term guaranteed liquidity, you need to be compensated for the fact that that capital is now tied up in that specific firm or fund and is no longer available to pursue another opportunity that you might come across over the next few years. So when investors invest in private markets, not only do they get diversification from the public markets, but they're able to earn additional return on their capital. Uh, more so than the public markets because they're tying it up. And so what we advise clients to do is once you've met sort of those foundational elements of your financial planning and now you're in the enviable position of having uh, potentially generational wealth or at least excess wealth that is not necessary for just funding your retirement, that's when you should start thinking about earning that illiquidity premium by investing in private markets. I really appreciate that insight. And Digital currencies, digital assets, having a rather tough year and more news coming out of what happened with FTX. Yes. Um, 
And at one point, though, it was supposed to be thought of as like an inflation hedge. Well, with your work in that space, what are your thoughts on the future of digital currencies, digital assets, and how they can fit into an overall strategy if and when it could apply? (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I would say this. When you look at what the conditions in the digital assets market were a year ago, 12, 18 months ago, um, you could see some froth. I mean, it was pretty unbelievable when you look at the valuation, and I use probably air quotes on valuation metrics on some of these protocols. Um, There was a lot of fluff, a lot of, you know, questionable things going on. Um, But I don't think that should call into question the power of the underlying blockchain technology. Um, Blockchain technology on which all of these digital currencies are built has some very true uh, potential in terms of disintermediating a lot of businesses that exist today. It might take decades for that to happen, but it's real and it's potentially deflationary to a lot of people's profit margins um, and and good for a lot of industries that are paying those firms. Um, In terms of long-term, what happens with digital currencies? I think, um, you know, not dissimilar from the dot-com bust 20 years ago, you're seeing a separation from the truly differentiated um, economically rational projects that have a reason to exist versus a lot of just highly speculative money grabs by people that were raising money just to try to beef up the price of a token and then cash out. And so I think over the long term, you'll probably see VC investment, both cash and human capital into the digital currency space concentrate around relatively few, but relatively important projects. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was just pure speculation will go away. Um, in longer term, I still think that, Bitcoin especially will serve a purpose as something to akin to a store of value, um, but will always be a more speculative one that's more of a digital version of gold. I know I'm popping around a little bit. And I love that I could do that in our conversation, Scott. Yeah. Um, we've seen such a wide divergence in the private markets, especially in venture capital types of investments. Mm-hmm. How does one do proper due diligence to account for this deviation within the private markets? Sure. Um, we spend a ton of time focused on the people, um, especially in the private market space. When you think about uh, the life cycle of businesses and the types of businesses that different funds invest in, um, on the very, very early stage, you have seed round investing funds. So they're investing in companies almost before revenue, oftentimes pre-revenue stage or when there's de minimis revenue. At that point, you're more so just betting on the people that are leading that project and you're betting on the upside potential of whatever business someone's trying to build. So we spend a ton of time just making sure we understand who the principals are, what their experience is. Is it relevant to the business plan that they have in front of them? Do we think that business plan is differentiated and has a real reason to exist? Um, has a real edge versus competition. And especially in the VC space where your downside is always zero, is the total addressable market big enough and addressable enough over the short term to justify the risk you're taking? So when you think about private equity and private markets, you know VC got very, very frothy um, really because of what we referred to earlier. When capital's cheap and rates are low, you get rewarded for growth and people tend to be rather greedy. And so valuations in the VC space got very frothy. Uh, we're having a bit of a, a reset there, and that'll take a few quarters until these companies start to need more capital. 
Um, but longer term, there's always good opportunities in the early venture space. It's just a matter of buying them right and partnering with the right people and doing it at a reasonable valuation. I can't help but think of a quote um, from Benjamin Graham, <laughs> basically the, the father of value investing. Yeah. He famously stated that, quote, unquote, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. What are your thoughts to that quote? How do you see that playing in today's environment? And how should a long-term investor incorporate something like what Benjamin Graham was just talking about? Well, I think when you, when, you, when you study Benjamin Graham and Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, there's just some inherent logic and wisdom and kind of how they invest. Um, and not to boil down, you know, a century worth of experience from three of the best investors ever, but, you know, you focus on high quality companies with strong competitive moats that can compound their earnings growth over the long term. And if you buy great companies at reasonable valuations, you'll do quite well. And that strategy has been proven successful for a very, very long time. I think that the, the, the problem with employing that strategy for a lot of people is it takes a lot of discipline. Um, you're going to underperform when the market gets zany and everything's going up. Um, and it seems like anybody with a business plan can fund a SPAC. However, if you can take the long-term perspective and you can stick to your guns and just to employ these tried and true methods to compound your capital – you'll be in good shape. So, you know, Ben Graham, I think is, is looking pretty good in 2022 uh, and his track record remains quite stellar. Now, I, I'm not saying anything negative about Benjamin Graham. I've read uh, a lot of the, the stuff that he came out with and it still applies today. But when he was writing those things, the market was so much smaller than it is. And the, the global economy, it's a butterfly flaps its wings in one country. Yeah. You see that hit other parts of the, the global, just the, the, and the spread of information. Yeah. It goes to me into a, a, a fundamental discussion that still happens in our industry between fundamental analysis and technical analysis. Mm-hmm. I know you're a CFA. You might be leaning one way over the other, but like, where do you see those two things uh, working together to then uh, be able to evaluate what's going on within the different uh, macros to the micros of the, of the, of the industry. Sure. So I would fall uh, very firmly on the side of fundamentals over technicals, but I would not dismiss technicals outright because I think when you boil it down, technical analysis is really trying to divine behavioral signals and look at past similar behavioral patterns and then extrapolate forward what will probably happen from that. And I'd say where fundamental and technical start to overlap is sentiment in the market. Um, You can be a phenomenal fundamental investor, but if you're not disciplined and taking advantage of troughs and sentiment, you're going to miss some good opportunities. And so I view technical analysis as just another way of trying to get a gauge on where sentiment is and where it could go relative to historical patterns but I still think, you know, if you blindfolded a fundamental investor um, and wouldn't, didn't let him see the charts, I'm pretty sure he'd end up doing okay with long term. <laughs> I love it. I love it, Scott. Well, it goes back to the quote. It's a voting machine, but at the long, time, long term, it's a weighing machine. Technicals seem to go into what's going on with the vote. Use your time wisely and think on a very long term horizon. Um, 
when you really sort of boil down what economics is and what wealth creation is, it's generally about managing your time. Um, we all have a limited amount of it uh, in the long term. And when you're young, you're trying to invest in the skills and training and experience so that your human capital can earn a lot in monetary assets. And then from there, um, you try to manage your budget and stock away that wealth that you're creating so that it, later in your life, you have time to use freely. And I think those that are ultimately the most successful are able to work in jobs that they're very passionate about and earn a good living and then manage the expense side and, and really prepare for the future and think long term. And if you can start thinking in long term increments, especially as an investor, you'll quickly differentiate yourself from everyone else. I just want to say it was an absolute pleasure and honor just to speak with you today. And I very much appreciated your insights on your own experiences and thoughts on building wealth. Now, if you're listening, if you're interested in learning more about what we spoke about today, please reach out to your prime capital investment advisor or go to www.pciawealth.com to schedule a meeting with an advisor. Listeners, that was the Scott Duba, Chief Investment Officer of Prime Capital Investment Advisors. Thank you for your 20 minutes of today's event. Thank you.